Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfelt. Today we're continuing our series, The Ten Commandments. So let's turn in our Bibles to Exodus chapter 19, verses 1 to 25, as Dr. Newfelt brings us a message titled, The Drama at Mount Sinai. We've all heard the maxim, history repeats itself. And what that means is that there are certain patterns set into human experience. You know, for instance, the human race has learned from its experience that absolute power corrupts. Grant a man absolute power, and in time, he will become a corrupt man. His corruption will be seen in serving himself and in trampling on the rights of the poor and the powerless. History repeats itself. And because it does, as I've given in this example of power, wise nations who have learned from the past tend to put restrictions on power. We know also from history that leaderless nations dissolve into chaos and anarchy, and we know that that anarchy is unacceptable. History has also taught us that we need to be governed, but we must be governed in such a way that those governing us are held to account. History repeats itself, and so if we fail to learn the lessons of history, we will repeat some mistakes that have been made in the past. And so the maxim, history repeats itself, tends to be an important maxim indeed. And this is the point I want to make today. Not all history repeats itself. Some events in history are not cyclical at all. Some events are never repeated. Most especially, those times when God does something unique is unique. You know, God so loved the world that he sent his son into the world. That's a unique event. There are no more messiahs to come, except, I suppose, for false ones. You know, I say that because the events recorded in Exodus 19 are unique events. Never once in all recorded history has such a thing ever happened, nor will there ever be such a moment again. In Exodus 19, a nation of two million people all at once heard the voice of God and from him directly received their law. No other nation has a divine law. Oh, I know. There are nations that claim it. The divine right of kings, even the godlike status that is given kings is, you know, one of those cyclical events in history. Dictatorial and evil rulers love to claim godlike status. But that is not what happened at Sinai. See, at Sinai, no king spoke to the people. God did. And the law that was given to that nation was given to no other nation. I've already made that point yesterday. So, from Sinai, let's learn its lessons. I begin by reading Exodus 19, verses 1 to 3a. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out from the land of Egypt, on that day, they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. Now let's set the stage for this drama. Since people followed the lunar calendar in those days, we can say that the third new moon is about three months after Israel came out of Egypt. And that means that the experience of the Exodus was still raw. There's a slave nation of about two million people, and All they once had was just a story. It was a story of Abraham and the promise that this nation of slaves was a chosen people. It was almost laughable if you think about it. 
And that was because their ancestor, Jacob, with his 12 sons and wives and children, had migrated from their promised land to Egypt in order to survive a cruel and vicious famine. But Jacob, who is also named Israel and his family, settled in Egypt and were granted a special status and they flourished. Somewhere along the line, Egypt was invaded and conquered by a people known as the Hyksos. And piecing history together, the king who knew not Joseph was probably a conquering Hyksos king who set on a pattern of dividing people. It was he that enslaved Israel, and and after the Egyptians mounted a resistance and threw the Hyksos out of Egypt and regained their own land for themselves, it appears they never thought of foreigners in a friendly way again. And so Israel remained in slavery, that is to say, they did, until Moses showed up. He told Israel that he had been to a mountain in the Sinai Desert, Mount Sinai. God had met with him at a burning bush and had told him to take off his sandals. He was standing on holy ground. And there on the holy ground of Sinai, God told him to go and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. Well, most of you know what happened next. Moses had power to back up his demand, the power of the God of Sinai. In a series of 10 plagues, God devastated Egypt. And Egypt, then the most powerful nation in the Near East, bowed the knee and let the slaves go free. Three months later, this nation, Israel, still reeling from this display of supernatural power, comes to the base of the mountain where their leader Moses has met with God. They set up camp and then they wait. What will happen next? I'm reading verse 3. Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourself have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Now, if you're wondering what we have just read, it can be summed up in one word, covenant. And if you don't know it, covenants form the backbone of the entire biblical story. Whether it's the covenant with Abraham or with Israel at Sinai, or the covenant with David, or the new covenant sealed by the blood of Jesus, covenants are the major anchor points of the biblical story. If you don't understand the covenants, you can't understand the story. So what's a covenant? Well, a covenant is a binding agreement between God and his people. Now, if you want to understand a covenant, think about a marriage as a covenant. Two people who are in relationship with each other form a binding agreement. And the covenant that's made at marriage includes promises that both parties make to each other. And that's what we find here. Let's start with a relationship that already exists. God says to Israel, You've seen what I've done to Egypt and how I brought you out to myself. That's the relationship we presently already have. I did this for you. Now, if you'd been there, the part about God bringing them to himself would have been understood in terms of the mountain where they were standing. Moses had already told them that this is God's mountain. Now, God has brought this nation to a mountain where he dwelt. Next comes the terms of the covenant. Verse 5 says that if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, Do you see how this covenant works? It is conditional. It has terms that are built into it, as is true of all covenants. 
Israel is to obey God's voice. That is to say, God will become their king and they will become his subjects, subjects of the God who brought them out of slavery. So that will be their obligations. But like any covenant, the other party also outlines his obligations. And so God now tells Israel a truth. The whole world, he says, is mine. He's the creator of everything that exists, and therefore he's also the owner of everything. We can see here the reality of monotheism. God claims that he's the only God. And then he makes Israel a promise, or to put it into our language, God proclaims the terms of the covenant by which he will bind himself to them. If Israel obeys him, then among all the peoples he has made, they will occupy a place not shared by any other nation. They will be his nation. That's the promise. Furthermore, they will be a kingdom of priests. Now, priests, as the law will later emphasize, have a fundamental role. They are to stand as intermediaries between human beings and God. They make it possible for people to gain access to God. In short, Israel is promised a role for all the earth. They as a nation will be the nation that ushers the human race into God's presence. That's the promise, and that's what God promises in this covenant. Now, everything is dependent upon obedience to God or obedience to the law. If Israel submits to God in his law, they will inherit this special place. Now, then we come to verses 7 and 8. It says, So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And so Moses, who had gone up the mountain to hear from God, comes down to relay the message. And I don't know how Israel responded to this offer. I mean, did they meet in their tribal groups or even among their clans and families and and then decide to respond? I mean, we aren't told. But however the process was conducted, the entire nation responded. They said, we will do everything. And with that, Israel enters into a covenant to become a unique nation on the face of the earth. And that, in the end, will eventually bring a savior into the world. You know, some things don't mix. Oil and water, plaids and polka dots. It's not that these couplings never occur, but our minds don't really readily pair them. The same holds true with our pains and joys, both expected, but we rarely consider them as simultaneous. But God adjusts our thinking. The Bible reminds us that joy can be found in trials and our tears can be turned into laughter. It's not instant or self-generating, but a matter of God's grace working within us, like gold refined in fire. Joy can be found in the midst of struggle. So to encourage you as our free gift this month, we want to send you a combo CD series from Back to the Bible Canada and Laugh Again called Joy in Tough Times. Five messages from Dr. John in five joy-filled Laugh Again episodes. Joy in Tough Times, our free gift to you just for calling 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. When I began today's message, I said that there are certain events in history that are non-repeatable events. 
didn't happen but once. In Exodus 19, verse 9, we read of one of those events. That verse says, And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. And later on, at the end of his life, as Moses reflected on those days, he said, and I'm quoting here from Deuteronomy 4, verse 33, Did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire, as you have heard and still live? Translation, was there ever a time in the history of any nation that the entire nation heard God speak to them at the same time and have survived that experience? Fact is, at the time of Moses, it had never happened. And up to this day, it's not happened again. This was a day unlike any other day when the voice of God spoke to an entire nation. Now, I know other countries will have said that a prophet from God spoke to their nation, but this is not a prophet speaking. This is God himself speaking in an audible voice to two million people at once. But the nation has to prepare for this encounter. The commands for preparation are then given and recorded in verses 10 to 15. The Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For in the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up to the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot, whether beast or man he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. Now, the idea of consecration means to be made holy. I know when we today speak about holiness— we're talking about an inner condition, but, but in this case, it's an outer preparation. I mean, look at it this way. When we baptize someone today, it, it's an outer symbol of an inward reality. See, in the same way, Israel was to have an outer symbol of an inward condition of holiness. All clothing was to be washed. No one was to appear with an unclean garment. But they were also to abstain from sexual relations. So why was that? Well, nowhere does the Bible teach that sex in and of itself is a sin. You know, sexual relationships between a husband and a wife, well, that's holy in the sight of God. But you might be helped to think about it kind of like a fast. See, when we fast today, we're not saying there's anything wrong with food. Rather, we're denying ourselves for the sake of taking away every other distraction and focusing on God alone. And so the nation was to prepare And in the meantime, they were not to go near the mountain. And so capital punishment rules were enacted. And the reason why the person going near to the mountain is not to be touched, but rather shot to death with arrows, was to ensure that the one who puts the lawbreaker to death must himself not become a lawbreaker by going near the mountain. But what is this all about? Why why such harsh rules? Well, I think the answer has to be that every single member of the community had to understand the seriousness of dealing with God. And might I say it? In our day, many people have no such sense. The idea that God is a consuming fire and that to encounter him and to live is to them, well, it's it's astonishing. 
See, I say this because I fear that when many people today are talking about God, well, they're not talking about God at all. Instead, they're talking about what they have constructed out of their own imaginations. The God of the human mind, which the Ten Commandments will warn us about, is a God who always affirms us and is there to suit our fancies, a God who should apologize to us when, when our sensibilities are offended, rather than a God who demands that we repent to him. And so at the outset, stringent rules are put in place as the nation waits for God to speak. Now, let's move to the actual day of the encounter with God. I'm reading here Exodus 19, 16-19. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and the very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now, Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like a smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. See, I want you to imagine the scene. On the third day after the announcement that God would speak to them, the nation moves from their encampments in some organized fashion to the base of the mountain. See, that in and of itself would have been quite an undertaking. And I suspect, given what happens later, that they would have been organized according to their tribes and then their clans and then finally their families. Everyone would have been assigned their groupings as they would have settled in front of the mountain. And I imagine a kind of an eerie calm. You know, some years ago, I read the account of a pseudo-Christian cult and their founder had predicted the actual date of the second coming of Christ. And in this case, this, this incident happened in the 1800s. And they gathered for worship in a church, and then, as it was getting towards sunset, they all gathered outside in the sure knowledge that before the last rays of the sun went down over the horizon, Christ would return. So you can imagine the anticipation, because these, these people believed. And then they are left standing in the dark. I guess it's time to go home. I mean, I don't know, but what do you do when the sun has gone down? I mean, do you go out for coffee? I mean, make lunch for tomorrow at work? I mean, talk about what a nice sunset it was? I, I hope you see that when you build the anticipation, if nothing happens, interestingly enough, it doesn't destroy the, the faith of some people. Instead, they, the religion accommodates and puts out new goals and, and tries to come to terms with what it is, to put it mildly, a mess. But not so on this day. The anticipation is great as they settle before Mount Sinai, and eerie silence settles on a vast group of millions of people, and they wait. And as they do, thick clouds are gathering. Lightning is flashing. Thunder rumbles through the mountain valleys. And then I can't even imagine the sound because it's not faint. It's very loud, no doubt louder than the thunder. A sudden overwhelming trumpet blast must have scared everyone half to death. The mountain now seems to be transformed into a volcano. Smoke is pouring from the top and, and the ground under their feet is shaking. It feels like a massive earthquake. And now the sound of the trumpet is so loud, people have their hands over their ears. And then louder than anything else, you could have imagined a sound so pronounced that it made you feel every word that's spoken in your bones. God calls Moses come up on the mountain. That sound is clear and articulate as it at the same time fills every crevice of the creation around you and it also fills your body. And we finally come to Exodus 20, and the first 17 verses tell us what God said that day and everything that all of Israel heard. It's the Ten Commandments. And then when all Ten Commandments have been spoken, Exodus 20, verses 18 to 19 says, 
Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountains smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Must have been the most terrifying experience a human being can have. And then Moses then tells them that this experience was given them so that they would fear God, not sin. And from that moment, the giving of the Ten Commandments must be seen as a unique moment in the history of the world. These laws were given to Israel from the mouth of God. And in the years to come, Israel would come to understand both the joy and the burden of that day when the law was given. Eventually, Israel would fail utterly in keeping this law. But eventually, the greatest of all of Israel would arise. His name would be Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ from God, and he alone would fulfill the entire law. See, in our day, these ten laws still speak. The sound still resonates from Mount Sinai. They tell us what God is like, for these ten laws reflect his righteousness, his justice, his holy standards. But these laws are also the measure against which every human being can judge himself or herself. Eventually, when we come to this in this study, these laws will eventually be our schoolmaster. They will be our tutor leading us all the way to Christ. Never think of these laws as anything but a revelation of God himself. Thanks, John. Uh, you know, I'm excited by this passage, I think, because sometimes I think we become so familiar with God, and, and I think this drama is building up, and there's such, a, such an, an immensity, almost like a, uh, just a profound expression of who God is that sometimes we just take for granted. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because the passage also says that the fear of the Lord will keep you from sinning. I, I do think when we forget who God is, we become quite comfortable with sinning. Um, but when we consider the nature of God, uh, sinning, sinning is really a, you know, it's a difficult issue because it, it terrifies us. We have violated the, the covenant with God. We violated his law. So uh, I, I think both the immensity of God and the holiness of the individual who seeks to be conformed into the image of God, those things are always connected, Ben, I think. Yeah, and I, and I also want to add to that one more thought, and that is the life of holiness is where the Ten Commandments should lead us. Um, it will always lead us to the place where we take care how we live our lives before Him. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow for this continuing series on the Ten Commandments right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. This past month was Back to the Bible Canada's International Ministry Month. So on behalf of everyone at Back to the Bible Canada and our international partners, we want to express our appreciation for the gracious gifts that were given to sustain and grow the impact upon these global Bible teaching efforts. The international ministry programming and resources are sent to our partners every month, ensuring a consistent flow of excellence in trustworthy Bible teaching. So please continue to pray and continue to consider how you might support these international initiatives. So call today for more information on international monthly partnership or to offer your gift 
at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.